Well, what's up, Pompano? How you guys doing this morning? You guys doing well? Awesome, awesome, awesome. Hey, my name is TJ. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, sorry that it, it's hot in here. We have no control over that. But I think something happened. In fact, I'm going to take this off if that's all right with you guys because I sweated like crazy in the last service. Yeah, that's probably not the response. Uh, Anyways, hey, uh, we're glad that you're here and uh, excited about this series that we've been in over the last couple weeks, talking about immeasurably more and the fact that God wants to do that. If you've missed the last couple weeks, let me give you some some heads up. We announced over the last two weeks that we are beginning our immeasurably more uh, building project out on the piece of land that we purchased in Parkland earlier this year. We have 7.29 acres out there, and we have a campus in Coconut Creek. We're one church, multiple locations, and so you're a part of something that's bigger here than just what's happening in Pompano Beach. There's stuff happening out in Coconut Creek as well, and soon to be in Parkland. And so we're getting ready to to start a construction project there that's going to be 16,000 square feet. We're going to be the first evangelical Christian church in all of Parkland out there. And so God is up to something amazing. We're going to get the opportunity to bring Jesus to a lot of people that have yet to have that opportunity. So that's an exciting, exciting thing. We're going to continue to give you more information on that over the next couple of weeks as, as we continue to pray and ask God how he would like for all of us to be a part of that. Um, today, uh, how many of you guys have, have, maybe you do this at home, maybe you do this at the gym, how many of y'all have ever run on a treadmill or run on a treadmill? Any any treadmill runners out there? A couple of people, okay, most the vast majority have ran on a treadmill at least once. Um, I, I've, I used to be a big, big fan of running on the treadmill. Uh, I, I would go to this Allied Fitness. It's in Coconut Creek where I live, right down the road on Lions Road. I said I used to go there. There's a reason for that. You'll understand uh, here in a little bit. But uh, I, I would love to run on the treadmill. Where, where How it was set up there is is you're up on the second level and you're kind of looking down on everybody as you're running. Like you're better than them. That's how I kind of thought about it. Like if I'm running, I'm better than those people that are lifting weights. And and so I would, I would go up there and I would run and they had these TV set up so you didn't have to just endure the pain. You could at least put your mind on something else. So I'd bring some headphones, plug into the, the treadmill, find ESPN on the TV and just run, run five, six, seven, eight, nine miles. Just, just trying to run the fat off. It just never seemed to work. Um, and so one day I was up there, I was running, and I was watching ESPN, just, just minding my own business, and I found that I like to be away from the little bars that are the protection because they, I feel confined by them. So I like to run on the back of the treadmill near the near the back of it so those bars weren't next to me. And 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 because of that, my headphones would be extended out. And, and so I have a tendency to kind of like veer back and forth when I'm running. So I'll go towards one side. I'll go towards another, partly because I'm not paying attention because I'm watching TV while I'm running, which isn't a good idea, just by the way. And so I was up there and I was running and I don't know if this has ever happened to you but my foot kind of like I took a step and half of my foot landed on the tread and half of my foot landed on like the side that doesn't move and I don't know if this has ever happened to you but when that happens uh your foot stops but the treadmill keeps going and it turns you it like Jet rocket propels you off the back of the treadmill. The only problem is, 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 is that my headphones were connected to the treadmill, which meant that as my feet got shot behind me, my face got pulled towards the front, which meant that I went from being uh, 
horizontal or vertical to horizontal. I landed on the treadmill. It shot me out the back or like off to the side. And my first reaction as I got shot off was is I rolled over and started stretching out, you know, acting like I was doing that on purpose, trying to get these cramps out of my legs. Um, the only problem was is that I had this huge like red mark on my face from where my, my face had slammed into the treadmill. And, uh, and, and I remember getting up and acting like it was no big deal and then immediately leaving LA Fitness to never return. I'm guessing that I'm the only person that's ever done that or been willing. This is the first time I've ever admitted that in my life. That, that like You're like, oh, that's who that was at that day. I'm just... But it got me thinking about running on a treadmill because I think that that's a lot like life. A lot of us are going through life and we get on a treadmill and we're just pounding away. We're just running. Some of us are running hard. Some of us are at a light jog. Some of us are walking. But no matter how far we go on that treadmill, we're making no progress. It seems like we're, we're not uh, achieving the things that we thought were possible in life or the dreams that we thought would be capable of. And we just kind of settled for almost a mediocrity of this is all that life is going to be. Like this is all that I can hope for. This is all that I can achieve. No matter how hard I run, I'm not making progress. No matter how light I run or, or how slow I run, there is no progress. And I don't believe that we were made or we were designed to go through life and not have progress, to not experience all that God had planned for us. And so we've been looking at a portion of scripture out of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. It says, now to him who is able, it's referring to God. It's, it's saying now to him who is able. See, we, we're running around in life on this treadmill thinking that this is all there is. But God has this ability to do something supernatural in our life. He's got this ability to change our circumstances. He's got a, this ability to change our life. It says, now to him who is able to do it immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, no matter what we've settled for in life, God wants more for your life. He wants more for my life. He doesn't want us to just settle for the status quo. But he says, like, I've got something more for you. It says that is at work within you. It says, according to his power that is at work within you like there is a power that is working within you just the problem is is most of us have not tapped into it to him be the glory in the church and through christ jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen and so we we start to see as we read the scripture that we have this god who has this amazing ability to do a lot more than we could think or imagine so no matter where you're at in life no matter what you're experiencing, maybe you're just settling for what you've achieved, God has got more for you. And he wants to do more, and he's got an ability to do more than what you've settled for. In fact, he wants to do way more than you could think or you could imagine. The problem is, is how do we tap into that power that's supposed to be working within us? Like, how do we harness that to see God do more in our lives? And that's really what I want to talk to us about today. Like, what is the secret sauce of making that a reality of our life? And so we're going to be looking at a story out of Luke chapter 9. If you want to turn in your worship guide there, you want to turn in your Bibles, uh, we're going to be looking at a portion of scripture that I think is probably one of the most famous miracles that Jesus ever performed while he was here on earth. Because I think that a lot of times we look at our circumstances, we look at our life and we say only a miracle is going to change this. And so 
how do we experience a miracle in our life? Like, what does that look like? And like, normally I would read this portion of scripture to you and talk, but I just thought that we could do something a little bit different. Is it okay if we do something a little bit different today? Uh, okay, like three of you. That's fine. That, that's a consensus to me. And, and so, um, so I want to do something a little different because I like to read scripture and put myself into it. I think it makes scripture come way more alive because it gives me my reaction to the situation. Like if I was in that circumstance, how would I react? And so I want to kind of set the scene for what's going on. The, what is happening is, is picture it like this. You're on a pastor search committee. And uh, if you've never been a part of a church before, a lot of times churches, in order to select a pastor, they'll put together a committee that goes and looks for a good candidate to take care of the church. And so they've been uh, tasked, there's been a group of people that's been tasked with finding the right candidate, and you've been put on that group. In fact, you're kind of the chairperson of that group, and so you're leading the discussions, and you've heard about a guy that has been uh, healing the sick. He's been... Uh, Casting out demons. He's been raising people from the dead. He has been one of the most sought after communicators on the face of the earth at this point. Crowds and crowds of people are following him. And so you've invited him in to kind of audition on a Sunday morning for your church to see if he is the right person. And so worship has gone off and it's been spectacular. And so it's time for this guy named Jesus to speak. And so you start your 10 a.m. service, the music lasts 20 minutes. You introduce him, and he starts teaching. And typically, your church lasts like our church, like an hour and 15 minutes. And, and so uh, it, it's 11 o'clock. Jesus is still teaching. It's 1 o'clock. Jesus is still teaching. You're gonna, probably going to be late for lunch at Piccadilly. And so like that, like that's a little different. And so uh, he continues to speak, and he's, he's kind of getting long-winded now. It, it's about 3 o'clock. You've already missed the first game, and so you're getting upset now. Um, it, it's gotten to 5 o'clock, and, and because you, you missed lunch... It's now getting to dinner time. Your stomach's starting to growl, and you're like, man, I'm getting hungry. And so you're sitting over there with this committee that you're the chair of, and you're like, man, I'm getting hungry. What are we going to do? And, 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 and so you're sitting there, and you're discussing this while he's teaching. In fact, the Bible says, it says, as the day began to wear away. It says, so basically, Jesus has taught like all day. It's starting to become dark now. You're going, man, I'm, I'm getting hungry. And so you're talking amongst each other, and you're like, what are we going to do? How are we going to convince him to end this service? Because it seems like he can go on forever. And one of them goes, one of them goes, you know what? I'm hungry, but I bet you the people are hungry too. And, and somebody else goes, you know what? That's it. That is the right idea. He seems to care a lot about the people. He doesn't give a rip about us, but he seems to care a lot about them. And so that's what we need to do. We need to tell him that the people are hungry. And so being that you're the chairman, you're the elected to go tell Jesus. And so you're, you're, you're figuring it out. And so he's up there on stage. He's speaking. And you walk out. You're like, excuse me. Excuse me, Jesus, excuse me, excuse me. Quiet down, quiet down, Jesus. Uh, real quick, real quick. This has been an amazing uh, day of teaching. In fact, like uh, this series of messages that we would normally do over 10 weeks, incredible today. Personally, like I, like, I, I could listen for hours. Like you could keep going if it was up to me, but, but the people, the people... Are, are, are getting hungry. And, and Jesus is like, 
So, so the people are hungry? Yeah, Jesus, the, the people are getting hungry. We should probably send them off because the restaurants are about to close. The restaurants are, you know, and, and we don't want them walking around in dark. It's dangerous. Like, have you ever walked down the streets of Jerusalem? It's kind of like the hood at night. You're like, you don't want to do that. And, and, and so Jesus looks at you and goes, well, you feed them. And you're like, excuse me? What'd you say? And he's like, you feed them. And so you have to walk back and report to everybody else like what Jesus just said. And so you walk over and they're like, so is he going to end the service? Is he going to turn this thing down? Is he going to pray? And, and then we can, we can kind of ditch it here. And, and you're like, man, Jesus, Jesus. Well, what did he say? And you're like, he said for us to feed them. What? He said for us to feed them. And they're like, what? And what you got to understand is there's like, the Bible actually says that there were 5,000 men in attendance. Now, I don't know if you realize this or not, but 5,000 men in the, this time, what they would do to take account is they would count the heads of households to get their count. And so when they said that there's 5,000 men, what that equated to with women and children, scholars believe is somewhere between 20 and 25,000 people. Can you imagine being on the pastor search committee and the guest speaker tells you, you go feed 20 to 25,000 people. Anybody catered a meal for that amount of people? And so everybody's up in arms. They're like, what the heck is going on? You're like, I don't have any idea, but somebody else should go talk to him because apparently I don't have much sway there. And so they look around and they realize, man, we've got like a bag of Long John Silver's from across the street. Which, after like nine hours of preaching, you know Long John Silver's is nasty to start with. Talk about like nine hours later. Not good. And you're like, here, give them this. Tell them this is all we have. And so, being the chairperson, you're elected to do it again. So you grab the Long John Silver's and you walk back over and you're like, Jesus. Jesus, listen. Excuse me, excuse me. Jesus. Um, I know that you said to feed the people. But uh, we, we've discussed our resources, and all we have is these five loaves and two fish, Long John Silvers. It's a, it's a happy meal. Um, and, and I don't think they're going to be too happy with it. And Jesus is like, that's fine. Have the people sit down in groups of 50. And you're like, e -e excuse me? He said, did I stutter? <laughs> I think Jesus had attitude. That's just my opinion. He said, have the people sit down in groups of 50. Now, I, I work with people, and I don't know if you notice this, but people are not very compliant. When you ask them to do things, they just do whatever the heck they want. So can you imagine trying to get 20 to 25,000 people to sit down in groups of 50? It'd be like herding cats, which the only thing cats are good for is killing. <laughs> I really dislike cats. I think, I think if you were to go to hell, you're going to find two things. The devil and cats. Like, they're just, sorry, you cat lovers. Uh, I don't know what to tell you. Um, and so you go and you get people to sit down in groups of 50, and you, you take the, the long John Silvers back to Jesus. And, and, and this is, as a disciple, this is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, like, I, I know the first five books of the Bible. It's something a, a Jewish person would have had to memorize as a child. And so they're thinking to themselves, they're thinking about like, man, God has done a lot of miracles in the past. I bet you what God's going to do, just like he did with Elijah, he's going to take the bread and he's going he's to multiply right before our eyes and, and, and this miracle is going to happen. So I, I would imagine that because I'm thinking that I grab a piece of the bread and I run over to Jesus and I'm like, Jesus, take, take my bread first, take my bread first, take this one. And, and I hand it to Jesus and Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it. 
and he blesses it, and then he hands me a portion of it back. And I look at Jesus, and I'm like, uh, you got some more there? Because this just doesn't seem like enough. And he goes, no, 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 that's blessed. Go give it to the people. I'm like, you sure? You sure you don't want to pray for this some more, Jesus? And you walk over, and you go to the first person in the group of 50, and you're like, take a little piece. Take a little piece. Take a little piece. Take a little piece. Kyle, I said a little piece. Greedy. You get down to the end. As it's getting down to a small little bit, it multiplies in the disciples' hands. I don't know exactly how it works. Scripture doesn't say, but that's how I imagine it. And at the end of feeding twenty to 25,000 people from five loaves and two fish, they have 12 basketfuls of leftovers. And so I look at this story and I, I say to myself, like, how, how does the immeasurably more miracle happen in my life? Like, what, what is the principle behind this? What are the principles behind this story that I can apply to my life today? Because that's a great story to read. It's a great story to tell. But how does that apply to my life? That's how I ask myself in Scripture all the time. And, and this is what I've come to realize and understand about God. If you're taking notes here today, number one, you can't produce a miracle, but you can prepare for it. You and I, we can never produce a miracle. There's, we don't have the power or the ability to make a miracle happen. But what I can do is I can prepare myself for a miracle. And what I mean by preparing myself for a miracle is doing exactly what the disciples did. They got as close to Jesus as they possibly could. And this is what I know is that, like, I, I can't do uh, miracles. I can't make miracles happen. But I can seek the one who does do miracles. I can get as close to God as I possibly can. I can do the ordinary thing, which is seek God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then I rely on God to add the extra to it. And a lot of us want the extraordinary in life without doing the ordinary thing of getting as close to Jesus as possible. A lot of us are seeking miracles, and instead what we need to see, do is seek God who produces miracles. Because we can't produce it, but we can seek the one who does do miracles in life. And here's this mistake that a lot of us make, is when we seek God, this is, our, this is how I perceive us seeking God. We look at our circumstances, and we see all of our problems, and we go to God, and we tell God how we want him to solve our problems. God, I need you to pay this bill. I need you to do this, and I need you to do that, God, if you would do this and do that. And we spend so much time and so much energy and so much effort telling God how we want the miracle to happen. If we would spend that much time just seeking God, we would see the miracle happen. See, we spend so much energy doing all those things, and what we're really doing is we're really praying a worry. That's why in Matthew chapter 6, verse 31, it's not in your notes, but you can look in your Bible. Jesus says, hey, I'm going to give you the antidote to your worry. He says this. He says, don't worry about anything. Don't worry about the food you're going to eat. Don't worry about the clothes you're going to wear. Don't worry about your, your needs being met. And then in verse 33, he says, this is what you need to do. Seek first the kingdom of God and live righteously. He says, put your focus and your attention on me. Put your your." Everything right there, and I'll supply all of your needs. That's what he says. 
And he says, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. What are all these things? All the things you need in life. See, what happens is, is when we have our attention on our problems, that's all that they are. But when we fix our eyes on Jesus, when we seek him first, our problems become opportunities. And opportunities in the hands of God is the opportunity for God to show up and do a miracle. But we can't see it like that when we're, the attention is not on God. See, what I've found is if you seek God, opportunity will seek you. And it'll seek you so God can show up and he can show off in ways like you've never imagined. That's what we've said over the last couple of weeks. Hey, as we're beginning this immeasurably more building project, what do we want you to do? Man, we want you to seek God. Pray to God. As we've given you these cards, man, pray every day. Put it in a, a visible place. Seek God. Say, God, how do you want me to be a part? Like, what do you want me to do? Like, I'm going to seek after you and I'm going to hear from you. And whatever you say, I'm going to be obedient to. Because when we seek God is when we'll start to see the miracles happen in our lives. Because we've said this project is going to cost $1.2 million that we've got to raise over the next 12 to 18 months. Which means that we've got to raise about $500,000 by the end of this year. Which is going to take a miracle for our church to do. And so the only way we're going to see a miracle is if we seek God. And then we'll see the miracle maker make the miracle happen. So what we've said that uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to take up a miracle offering on October 23rd saying, God, man, we're going to trust you. And all we've asked you to do is seek God. We've never asked you to give, nor do I even want you to give. I want you to seek God, listen to God, and be obedient to whatever he says. And so if God says, write a check for a million dollars, you spell million, M-I-L-L-I-O-N. And then if he says, give nothing, you know what I want you to do? I want you to give nothing. Because God is the one that as we seek him, we can't produce a miracle. But we can prepare for it by seeking God's heart. Second thing I've learned from this story is you'll never know what God can do with what you have until you bring it to him. You never have any idea what God can do with what you have until you bring it to him. What did they have? They had five loaves and two fish. And when they looked at their situation, they saw it as insufficient. They looked at their current circumstances. They said, this is not enough. And in fact, they had what a lot of us have. And they had this bag mindset mentality. They, 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 they had this mentality where this is never enough because it's, my life is not full. That means God can't do a miracle. God can't do it through me because I'm not full in my own life. You, you say to yourself, I don't have enough. I can't afford to. I've got to hold on to what I have. In fact, this bag mindset comes from Haggai chapter 1 verse 6. It says, you eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you aren't filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put it in a bag full of holes. The reason why is you never have enough is because you have great intentions, but your intentions never meet up with your emotions. And because you live based on your emotions, you make a distinction about God's ability based on your ability. Have you ever noticed the problem with that? Anytime you base God's ability on your ability, he's always going to be insufficient. Because you know what? 
You're insufficient. I'm sorry to tell some of you that. I know you think you're all that in a bag of chips with the guacamole dip. You're not. So what happens is we end up with the classic symptoms of a bag mindset. You said, you say to yourself, as soon as I get that promotion, then I'll be generous. As soon as so-and-so apologizes, then I'll extend forgiveness. As soon as so-and-so gets their life together, then I'll extend a helping hand. It's always when, then. When this happens, then I'll do that. And the problem with that is that requires no faith at all. And what is God about building? Is about building a people who trust him. And he says, listen, while it's in your hands, you're never going to be sufficient to fulfill that need. But when you put something in my head, you have no idea what I can do. I can turn five loaves and two fish into immeasurably more than you could ever think and you could ever imagine. And we've got to break this bag mindset mentality. And there are some principles here in this story that I think are so critical because what happens in this story is they took what they had. All that they had was five loaves and two fish, and they brought that to Jesus. And he blessed it, and then he gave a portion of that back. There's a financial principle in there, and I'm going to speak a little bit to finances right here. This is the principle of the tithe right here. He says, God says, you've earned something. You have 100% of something. I want you to bring that to me and give me the first 10%. And I'm going to bless it. And I'm going to give you 90% back. And that portion is going to be blessed. And here's what that means. He says, man, with that portion that's blessed, I'll rebuke the devourer from coming in and taking things away. And I'll supply all of your needs according to my riches and glory. He didn't say I'll supply all of your wants. A lot of us think that, like, God's going to supply all my wants. Well, I want a Bentley with 22s. I'm not getting that. He's going to supply all of my needs. And what happens is we have this portion that's blessed. And notice what the disciples did. They had some options when Jesus blessed that, that bread and that fish. They could have consumed it, right? They could have just ate it themselves, and they said, well, this is all we have, and, and we're hungry, so we better feed ourselves first. Which is what a lot of us do in life. We take the thing that's been blessed by God and we consume it all. But here's what they did. They took the portion that was blessed and they gave of it. And God multiplied it. A lot of us are missing out on the immeasurably more in our life because we've never gone above and beyond for God and trusted him with using what he's given us not to just all consume ourselves, but to make a difference in somebody else's life. Because here's what I've learned. No matter what I've given to God, point number three is you just can't outgive God. See, people that, that know this, they're all like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The people that aren't are like, man, he just wants my money. I don't want your money. Listen, if, if you think I want your money, you can go to any other church around here and give them your money. Like, I'll give you some recommendations. Calvary Chapel is a great church. Uh, church by the Glaze is a great church. First Baptist Pompano Beach is a great church. Uh, First United Methodist Coral Springs. Like, those are some great churches. Go give them your money. I don't want something from you. I want something for your life. And it, it isn't just about money. You, you just can't outgive God. I don't care if it's forgiveness. You forgive, and what does God do? He forgives you. 
you love somebody else, God loves you. More than you could ever think or imagine. He extends that into your life. It doesn't matter what you give to him. You just can't outgive him. Maybe you have some unforgiveness in your life that today you need to hand over to him. And, and God said, man, if you'll give that to me, like you'll be free in your own life because that unforgiveness that you're harboring is like drinking deadly poison and expecting somebody else to die only to realize that you're the one that's dying. Maybe for some of you, the thing that you need to give is your life. Maybe you've been holding on to it for a long time and you've never realized that Jesus came to die for your sins so you could have life and have it more abundantly. And if you were to be willing to let go of your life, you would find your life. Maybe for some of you, it is your finances. It's the thing you grip hold and hold tightly to because it's your security in life. And you would find out that really you're not very secure. And if you would put your trust in God, he would provide way more than you can. What is it that you're holding on to today that you, you need to give to God and allow him to do immeasurably more in your life? A couple of years ago, actually a couple of years into this, this church when we started it a little over seven years ago, there was a, a, a single dad that was in our church. And at the time, he didn't have his kids. And all of a sudden, he got custody of three girls, or two girls and one boy. And, um, and, and at the time, all he had was a moped. And how many of y'all know that a moped with three kids is not a, a good uh, deal? That isn't a sufficient means of transportation. And I remember Shayla and I were praying like, hey, how, how, what can we do? Uh, for this guy, and and I remember when we were praying, God being like, "Well, what's in your hand?" And uh, at the time, I was driving a 1997 Ford Expedition, and uh, and I was like, "Man, I, I I have an expedition," and God's like, "I want you to give that guy your expedition." And my initial reaction is probably like your reaction. Well, then, God, what am I going to drive? Like, what's going to be my rod? And I remember giving this guy our 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 expedition, and. Uh, I don't think it was but a week later that we were back in Bradenton uh, visiting somebody and I'd finished up this service there and, and a guy walked up to me who I'd borrowed his vehicle. I'd borrowed his 1999 Jeep Wrangler, which was such an upgrade to my 97 Ford Expedition. Um, he walked up to me and said, hey, God told me to give you this Jeep. Here's the title to it. It's yours. And I was like, it's amazing, God. And then a couple of years later, we were doing church over in Coconut Creek, and we started realizing that there were people that lived east of 95 that they were getting invited to church, but they wouldn't come because they didn't cross that 95 barrier. There's some sort of subliminal mind block in people's lives that they will not cross 95 to go west if they live east and and because we're a church that's always said we want to make it hard for people to go to hell by making it easy for them to go to church, we said, man, we better bring church to them. And so we, we went before our, our, our church in Coconut Creek and said, man, you know, we're, we're going to launch a church in Pompano Beach. And we, we called this project of, of launching this campus called Give Me Faith. And I remember Shayla and I were praying about, like, God, what would, what do you want us to do? Like, how do you want us to contribute to, to give me faith? Because at that point, we'd invested everything we had. We unloaded everything to, to make sure this church worked on the front end. And, and I had two things of value. A set of golf clubs 
in the 99 Jeep Wrangler and I was like, surely God, you wouldn't ask for my golf clubs. I remember God clearly saying, TJ, I want you to sell your Jeep and give it all to the church. And I was, my response again was this, God, what, do you, what am I going to drop? I said, you'll figure it out. Remember, we, we put that Jeep on Craigslist and it's like, sold in two days. I was like, I hate Craigslist. That was October of that year and November and December and January. We were going to a time of fasting. Shayla and I have been making the one car deal work. And in the middle of our time of prayer and fasting, I, there was this one day, I'll never forget, I was sitting in my, my bedroom just, just seeking God, just spending some time with God. And God told me two things. One of them I can't tell you yet because it hasn't happened. The second one is, is he said, man, I'm going to give you a car. I was like, that would be awesome, God. Literally, two days later, I get a phone call from somebody I know in Ohio that said, hey, God wants us to give you a car, and we have a 2008 Toyota Prius that we're going to drop down and give you next week. And I've just learned in life, and I don't tell you those stories and go, wow, that's awesome. Watch God work in his life. But I've just learned in life that you just can't outgive God. No matter what I've given God, God always shows up and shows off in a bigger and a better way. And I don't care what it is. And this is what I've learned, church, is that when you partner with God, you're going to see the miraculous happen in life. You're just going to see it happen. And sometimes you look at your life and you look at your circumstances, you look at what's in your hand and you go, this just isn't that significant. Like there's nothing that God could do with this to, to blow my mind. Like it's just not, like this isn't going to make a difference. And, and I'll tell you, you're just wrong. Because most of the time what God says is, what do you have? Put it in my hand and watch what I will do. And one of my favorite stories is the story of a little girl named Hattie Mae Wyatt. She was born in the late 1900s, or 1800s, I'm sorry, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Hattie Mae came from a very, very poor background. When she was four years old, one of the few opportunities for a poor child to have any education, to have any opportunity was at the local church. In fact, if you don't know this or not, the local church is responsible for education. The local church is responsible for health care as we know it. The local church is responsible for uh, uh, child welfare. The local church started all of those things. One Sunday, she went to the local church to go to Sunday school where she'd have the opportunity to learn and discover things and and be educated. But because that was the only opportunity for, for poor children, when she got there, Sunday school was too full. She couldn't get in, and she was outside the Sunday school with other children crying. And her, the pastor of the church walked up and saw this little child, four years old, crying, and bent down and tried to console her and he asked why are you crying and she goes because 
There's no room in Sunday school for me and I have to stay out here. I won't get the opportunity to learn and know Jesus. Pastor picked her up and brought her into the Sunday school room that was packed out and and just made some more room for her and set her down. And he said, someday, Hattie, when we get enough money, we're going to build Sunday school classrooms so that no kids have to have the experience that you have so that they don't have to stand out there and miss out on the opportunity to learn. A few months later, Hattie Mae became very, very ill because healthcare wasn't great in those times. She, she ended up passing away and as Pastor Cornwell went to their house and to console the mother and just make arrangements for her funeral, the mom said Hattie Mae had left something for him and she brought an envelope to Pastor Cornwell. She said, you made such a difference in Hattie Mae's life and your church did that the day that you brought her into Sunday school, you said that someday you're going to build more classrooms so that no kids have to be outside and miss out on their opportunity. And she took that to heart and she's been saving all of her money. And inside of that envelope was 57 cents that Hattie Mae had saved up. And she handed it to Pastor Cornwell and said, I hope that this helps towards future Sunday school rooms. And he got up that Sunday and spoke about Hattie Mae and said how she didn't have an opportunity and she wanted to make a way for other kids to have an opportunity. And that Sunday, a reporter happened to be in the congregation and he wrote a story about Hattie Mae's life. And a businessman that owned a piece of property next door that was selling it came to Pastor Cornwell and said, listen, if, you, if you'll give me that 57 cents, I'll sell you this property right next door. So that you'll have more classrooms for more kids and they'll have more opportunities. And they purchased that 57 cents and then a businessman gave it back and another business guy heard about it and they purchased more and it causes radical generosity to rise up within their church to reach more people. In fact, if you were to go to Philadelphia today, you would find out that that little Baptist church became Temple Baptist Church. It seats over 3,300 people today. That that classroom that they purchased ended up being the very first classrooms of Temple University that started out of that church. That that 57 cents ended up being the very beginnings of uh, uh, the Good Samaritan Hospital that's there at Temple University, all because one little girl said that my 57 cents wasn't insignificant. That when I put what I have in God's hands, you'll never have any idea what he can do with it. And I'm telling you here today, church, you'll never know what God can do until you put it in his hands and you've got to seek God and seek the one who does the miracles and say, God, what are you doing in this earth? And I want to give everything in life over to you because my life, my resources, my gifts, my talent, my love, my forgiveness in your hands can do immeasurably more than I could ever think or imagine. Sure, Hattie Mae had no idea that her 57 cents would change thousands of lives on a daily basis. 
You have no idea what you think that is insignificant in your hand is a miracle in the hand of God.